Will you, uh, will you pray for me as we come to studying God's word together? Father, we come to you with thanksgiving. We thank you for your word that's perfect and sure, that's pure and clean and enduring. Your word is sweeter than honey, more precious than fine gold. Father, help me to be faithful in saying what it says. Help my dear brothers and sisters be faithful in hearing what it says. Help me, Lord, be faithful in explaining what it means. And help my brothers and sisters be faithful in understanding what it means. Help me to encourage them, Lord, to apply what it means. And help my brothers and sisters believe and respond in love, hope, and faith to this, your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I invite you to open your Bibles as we read uh, the passage for today, which is from Romans chapter 6. And we're going to read today and study uh, verses 1 to 14. We're going to spend most of our time in verse 3. This is the word of the Lord. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. We thank God for his word. Over the past few weeks, I've been, um, I've been thinking about writing a letter to Harry. Prince Harry, <laughs> from Harry and Meghan. Now, for the younger ones among you, a letter is something you create with pen and paper. A pen is something which contains ink. Ink is a dye that we use to write on paper. I hope that helps the younger ones among you. Now, I want to write him a short letter, and the, those younger ones among you might say, well, just send him a text. But I have something important to him. I want, to, I want a letter adds a little bit more gravity 
We're going to read a letter today to the Romans. And I want to say to Harry, you're a prince. You can't do that. Or you're a prince. What are you doing? Now, he might write back and say, well, can't I be a prince and still do that? And I might say, have you forgotten what it is to be a prince? And do you know the reason why you are a prince? Now, I don't want to take the analogy too far, and I certainly don't want you to spend the next 30 minutes thinking of Harry and Meghan, but in many ways, that's what Paul's saying to to God's people, to the Roman Christians and to us today. In answer to one of the most heart-wrenching, heart-revealing questions ever asked, probably, and we'll come to that question in a while, Paul's answer is... Have you forgotten who you are? Don't you know who you are? And we're going to spend the remainder, and and he's going to spend the remainder of the text um, expositing that to him, the remainder of the chapter. And some would say the whole book of Romans after this is expounding on what he's going to say in answer to that. He's saying that the implications of these great and glorious truths explained in this chapter, particularly in verse uh, 3 and onward, are amazing. They have implications about identity, who you are, who we are. So he's not going to say that we're princes. He's going to say something much more glorious than that. He's going to tell the Romans that their being is in Christ. And that's actually a term that that Paul uses all the way throughout all of his epistles. He doesn't use the word Christian very much, but what he does use a lot is in Christ. And I wonder whether that would be helpful for us to say that to people around us. Who are you? Are you a Christian? No, I'm in Christ. Because that's actually our identity. And then he doesn't leave that question unanswered. He doesn't just sort of speak in theological terms. He ends with a command. He says that the whole point of what's happened is so that you might live a certain way. The truth that he speaks is to propel them in a certain kind of life because who we are is manifest in what we do and how we live. So in verse 11 to 14, he's going to say to live out this identity. So he's going to say, have you lost your identity? He's going to teach us about how your identity has been rescued, and then he's going to say, live out this identity. So who's Paul writing to these precious truths to? Well, we join him, don't we, in the middle of this letter. And that's hard. If you picked up a letter and you joined in the middle, you might be saying, what's, what's he talking about when he says all of these things. So if we go back to chapter 1 and verse 7 in Romans, we'll see who he's actually talking to. He describes the people in Rome that he's speaking to. He expresses his great love to them. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and a part for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship 
to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. He's writing to Christians in Rome, and he says they're called to belong to Christ Jesus. He gives them an identity. Because in Scripture, belonging is identity. And isn't that true when we think about identity politics, we think about the identity culture that we live in now? People are seeking an identity and defining an identity by whom they belong to. So identity and belonging are linked together. One of the terms that uh, a lot of the ancients used was, whose stock are you? Now, being a vet, I kind of like that term, being, a, being of animals. But it really saying, you know, who are your people? Who are you governed by? Who guides you? Now, it's, a, it's an agricultural term, but it's a theological term as well. Identity and belonging go hand to hand. The people of God have always known that. Isn't that true for you? Who are your people? Don't you get your identity by who your people are? So the story of Israel in God's community in the Old Testament was that who they are was related to whose they were. We see that. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 7. He's choosing a people, and his people come under his provision and his protection because they're his, the apple of his eye. In many ways, that was true of all people of old, the nations and the kingdoms, the tribes, the people groups, the families. Who they were, who they were their identity was related to, who, to whom they belonged because that represented security, protection. It represented their sufficiency, where they got their food and where they got their shelter from. But it also represented their significance. That was a time of war, wasn't it? A time of conquest, a time of vague borders. We had kings and there was this constant war that was taking place. And very often in those days, identity and belonging was expressed in external symbols. Isn't that true? My son's at, uh, playing soccer for a college. He always wears Messiah clothing. Rashawn buys him all these lovely clothes and uh, wants him to be a bit more preppy, and he turns up in his Messiah shirt because that's, for this season, that's his identity. That's his people. That's to whom he belongs. But Israel had a distinct, didn't they? They had a distinct food. They had a distinct clothing. They had a distinct appearance, certain beards, how they cut their hair, certain ceremonies, and God ordained those to set them apart. And isn't that true now? We put emblems on ourselves, tattoos, to, to say who we are, to sort of show our identity. And in fact, God said, your identity is so important, you shouldn't adopt the symbols of those around you. Leviticus 9, 27, 28. Their belonging, their identity was marked as well outwardly. And one of the ultimate emblems or signs of identity for Israel was circumcision. Circumcision was a sign that set them apart. It was a mark of belonging, of identity within Abraham's covenant. And 
That actually became a point of confusion for New Testament Christians, where in, under the New Covenant, the New Covenant of Grace, there was this question about when Gentiles join the nation, join the covenant under the New Covenant, the Covenant of Grace, should they have to get um, circumcised? And in Acts 15, that was all sorted out. They said, no, that covenant has gone. So in New Testament, becoming, entering into the covenant community was a different thing. It was resolved in Acts 15. So this sign of belonging itself was really a shadow and a pattern of a greater spiritual reality. They talk about a real Jew, a real Israelite, had circumcision of the heart. So it pointed towards something different. Now, you might wonder why I explain all that. It's really to think about baptism in this particular passage. Paul teaches in Romans chapter 6 about who we really are. And who we really are is determined by to whom we belong. And he's going to say, you're in Christ. What bigger belonging is there than our being in Christ? Our very being, being in Christ. Is that too many beings? Our being is in Christ. And he uses in chapter 6, baptism as the glorious vehicle by which those things, it affects or actuates our belonging or union to the Lord Jesus. Now, here he says, baptism establishes and institutes our identity in Christ. It's a beautiful truth, isn't it? Baptism establishes us firmly as God's covenant people. Now, I probably have set your minds in a certain direction, haven't I? What's baptism? Do I believe in that baptism or this baptism? I want to sort of ground us as we sort of explore the beauties of baptism in this passage to not think about what you're thinking in just, just this moment. If you read the commentators, actually, which I spent a little bit of time doing, which you do as you come to uh, preach, a lot of commentators say that Paul is speaking about spiritual baptism. Lloyd-Jones says, it's not about water baptism, it's about spiritual baptism. And I love Lloyd-Jones, I trust him, I'm like, okay, fantastic. And then I read some other fantastic commentators and they say, it's about baptism in the church. So, what does that mean? I think the transcendent middle place is to think about it meaning both. It's both. So I don't want your minds to go off. I want your minds to be rooted and to understand, as Paul often prays, that we understand the depths and riches of what our our identity in Christ is. So don't get distracted in your mind by thinking about one or the other. Think about both of them. Here's an example of what might help you. Think about uh, if 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 I spoke to you about being married. Now, I could tell you about the event at which I got married. I could tell you all the details of where we got married and what happened at that time. Um, I could tell you about the experience of being married, you know, and what really happened, that we were joined in the sight of God. But actually, to know me as a married man, you'd want to know about who I am and what that marriage means to my identity. I'm a husband. So I want you to think about that as we think about baptism. But I want to see much, much greater truths We can't just summarize baptism in just a couple of different lines. 
Romans chapter 6 is too deep for that. Somebody said to Lloyd-Jones in his church, they said, when are you going to actually start to preach on Romans? When will you preach through the book of Romans? He said, when I understand Romans chapter 6, there's great truths and therefore great blessing within this chapter. So for our hearts and our thoughts to be established, think about what baptism means to you as Paul describes it here. And you might say, well, marriage, that's a bit of a strange uh, example. That's a kind of an incomplete example. But actually, marriage is another picture of what the Bible describes as our identity. If you just pop down, you can see actually in chapter 7, the first couple of three verses, it talks about marriage. And so he's referring back to chapter 6, and he's talking about our identity in Christ, and he's talking about our union and our connection to Christ. And what does he use? He uses marriage as a picture of that. And he says that when we die, we'll no longer be married in heaven. You're separated. Your belonging changes at the point of death. You're no longer married to that person. That always makes me a little bit sad when I think of Rashawn, because I'm like, I'm not going to be married in heaven. I love being married to her. But there's great things in heaven as well. But he uses just as an example of identity, of union to two people. And all the way throughout Scripture, marriage is a picture of union. Baptism here in chapter 6 is this vehicle and imagery of our union to Christ, the vehicle by which our union to Christ occurs and a picture of that ongoing union. So we could say, we could say, well, let's talk about marriage, but that's not what Paul, he speaks about baptism. So let's talk about what Paul speaks of. But we could say marriage is part of it. We could use the same term union, but I'm going to use baptism and to think about the depths and riches of what that is. The marriage of Christ with his church is the same picture of the marriage of the baptism of believers into Christ. It's a picture of intimacy, a beautiful picture of intimacy. So Paul uses this picture of baptism. And what he says, by saying that, look, he says in verse, uh, he says, um, uh, verse 3, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? It's remarkable truth. But he's saying it's a baptism of identity and belonging. The baptism that you have received, you didn't do it. God achieves and acts out, effects this baptism. You're baptized and united to Christ. So something has happened. And in verse 3, it says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, he's talking about a past event. Don't forget he's talking to believers. He's talking to these Romans, Roman Christians, and he's saying this thing happened in the past. Whether that's a spiritual baptism, that happened in the past. Whether that's a water baptism, that happened in the past. But he's saying you're baptized in to death. And we start off thinking about it's a baptism of righteousness. And how do we know that? Well, you can see in this passage Paul's outrage at the question that's, that's just preceding. He says, he says, 
May that not be so. By no means is what he said. He's anticipating, actually, uh, with a question, which is very antagonistic. He's, a, he's either anticipating that people are going to ask this question, I haven't told you the question yet, or he's received this question. But what he does, he responds in this outrage. Why? He doesn't just respond like, ah. Then the, the, the words that they used here don't quite capture everything. If there was an emoji, and I'm glad the Bible doesn't have emojis, it's not like, ah, doesn't matter. It would be a red-faced, fierce, no, how can you say that? I'll tell you what they said in just a second. He's outraged because what he's talking about, the union with Christ, the baptism, is a baptism of righteousness. It's a summary, right? He's responding to sort of what's taking place from, from not just um, chapter 5, but the whole of the book of Romans. He says, by no means, you can't do what you're suggesting you're doing because what's happened to you is a baptism of righteousness. The suggestion which they were making was that we could keep on sinning to increase God's grace. After all Paul has said in Romans, they come to this point, he's laid out grace, and they say, well, can I just keep on sinning then? All of that grace, I might just keep on sinning, because it's free gift. Fantastic, I can just keep on sinning. That's like saying, I'm married, but can't I just be unmarried? That's what he's saying. That's ridiculous. You can't be unmarried. You can't act like someone who's unmarried. So Paul comes up with this outrage, this outrage. And all the way throughout the book, up to this point, he's, he's laid out the sinfulness of man and the righteous wrath and the judgment of God and his goodness and mercy towards sinners who turn to him. In chapter, in ver, in chapter one, he lays out his love for people and his love for the gospel. And he sort of says, he, he talks about, he says humanity is under the power of sin and under the power of sin, they've been exposed to God's righteous wrath. He doesn't take any prisoners. He says that this wrath is directed to all people, to Gentiles and to Jews. And just because you're a Jew, just because you have the circumcision in the law, that does not make you immune to God's wrath and God's judgment because of your sin. And then in Romans chapter 3, his saving righteousness is revealed. He goes on and then describes this, this saving righteousness, the mercies of God that have happened. And then he goes on and through chapter 4 and into chapter 5 and, and speaks about the amazing doctrine of justification, saying you're justified by God. You're declared not guilty. You have peace with God through Christ. Sin came into the world and reigned through Adam, but humanity has been restored through a second Adam, through the person of Christ. He speaks about the glories of grace and the power of the gospel and access that we have as believers to, through faith to the, the benefits of that. And then, that's why he's outraged, because after all of that, they say, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, by no means, God forbid. 
How can you say that? And the, and the, the language isn't just by no means, it's by no means a thousand times. That is so wrong what you're suggesting. If I go away on a conference and take off my wedding ring, does that make me unmarried? My identity is still married. I'm still united to Rashawn. He's saying the same thing. You can't, because of who you are, you can't just go off and sin. And what he says, he sort of, he talks about it in, in, in identity terms. Because he recognizes that the baptism that Christ has given us is a baptism of righteousness. That's what the passage we read earlier, which is a fascinating passage where, where Jesus himself is being baptized. And he's out in the wilderness, and he says to John, and John's like, I can't baptize you. And he says, let's fulfill this righteousness together. Jesus is baptized. It's a baptism of righteousness that you've received. And what happens? A voice from heaven comes at Jesus' baptism and said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. That's what happens at your baptism. This is my son. This is my daughter with whom I'm well pleased. What should we say then? Can we continue in sin? If God is well pleased with us, by no means. A thousand times, by no means. And look what he says. He said, he said, we who died to sin, can we still live in sin, in it? It's the same term used as being in Christ. It's, can, we, can that be our identity? Can sin be our identity? Can we live in the realm and under the rule and the domain and the power of sin? He said, by no means. Do we still sin? We still sin. Are we ruled by sin? Later on, he's going to say, no, that's impossible. And in the, in the following verses, he's going to, to expound the beauties of what that is. And he says, do you not know? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He's saying, you've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten whose you are. You've forgotten your identity. You've forgotten that you've been baptized into Christ. And look at the baptism. It says, you were baptized into his death. And he continues to explain that in the next verses. He talks about it being this past event. And uh, we read that earlier, didn't we? We read the event of Jesus' crucifixion. This is an aorist um, expression of this verb, a past event, a real event, an event that took place 2,000 years ago that we read about in John 19. Christ was crucified and he was buried, buried in the ground. And it says, look, into Christ Jesus. We're baptized into Christ Jesus and into his death. Christ is the Messiah. Jesus is, that name is the one who saves. Names mean something, don't they? That's the name into whom we are baptized. The name of the Messiah and the name of the one who saves. And it says we were immersed in his death. Now one commentator defines this, this word baptismo. He says the introduction 
or placing of a person or a thing into a new environment or into union with something else to alter its relationship with the previous environment or condition. It's a baptism of righteousness, but it's a baptism of death. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine. I don't know if you sometimes look at some of God's truths and you, you, you can't quite grasp what that means to be baptized into his death would be one of them. I don't know if you ever looked up into the heavens and you look at a far star and you say, that's millions of miles away. And actually, that's not a star. That's a whole set of galaxies. And there's a whole more billions of galaxies beyond there, millions of light years away. And then your head just goes, I can't grasp this. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. This is, we're baptized into his death. It's puzzling, isn't it? But he explains it further on. We're baptized into this real event. And in verse 4, it says this was the plan. He says, we were buried, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised, Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He says that this was the plan. The plan of you being baptized into death was actually the plan of redemption so that you could walk in newness of life. He's talking about a recreation. It's like in Ephesians 1, chapter, in chapter 1, verse 4, it says that you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. This baptism is part of the covenant of redemption. We're baptized into him, our identity, our belonging, our name comes from him, in him, in him. And we're baptized into this new life. And it says, in order that we might have this new life. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So our baptism into his death was planned so that we could be raised with him just as he was raised. It's not just a baptism of death. It's a baptism of life as well. So this sentence, this sentence tells us about his, it was part of his plans and his purposes through all uh, through all eventuality. And what it does, it rescues us from death. And in Scripture, death is a punishment. It says in 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So his plan was always to rescue us from the punishment that comes from sin. Adam and Eve were banned from the garden. They were banished in, in Genesis chapter 3, that was spiritual death. They were taken away. The rich man cast into hell in Luke 16 is separated from, there's a man in heaven, there's a man in hell, and they're separated. And the man in hell is separated from the presence of God. His identity is no longer, he's not united to Christ. Lazarus is sitting in the bosom of Abraham. He's united uh, in heaven, and the man in hell is in agony crying out. This is what death is. It's penalty. It's pain. It's suffering. We're scared of death, aren't we? But here he says we're baptized into his death. It's not as though 
Christ's death happened over here, and we're over here, and the, the benefits of his death and resurrection were attributed to us or transferred to us. It says, you were baptized into his death. I know, that's a remarkable thing, that we were there the same death as his. Because he's creating an identity outside of the identity that we had in Adam. The penalty of sin is being removed. Death must be terrible. I imagine sometimes what that might be like, the pain of death and the horror of death. Imagine the reality of being baptized into his death, being protected by his body. As we are buried, it says we're buried with him, and Colossians repeats that, and 1 Corinthians 15 repeats this idea. We're buried with him. Bury or taking us away from this environment of sin, but the process of death and bury or taking us away, but yet we don't experience the pain of death because on the cross, he took all of that pain and all of that suffering, and we are sheltered in his body. As his body was battered and, and bruised and beaten and took our stripes, our bodies don't experience that. We're delivered from the pain and punishment of death. So it's a remarkable truth, isn't it? He said, Christ was raised from the dead too by the glory of the Father. We might walk in newness of life. So this baptism, as we're baptized into Christ, all the way throughout Scripture, it says we're also baptized in as a Trinitarian baptism. There's other parts of Scripture that says the Spirit within, is within us and we're in the Spirit. In John 17, it says we're in the Father and the Father is in us. So it's this incredible picture of unity, not just to Christ, but the whole of the Godhead. It's a Trinitarian baptism. And that means... It's an eternal baptism, that our union with Christ, our marriage with Christ, our union with Christ, because it's with the persons of the Trinity, it's eternal. God the Father, God the Son, no beginning and no end. What does Romans 8 say? Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Why? Because we are united to him, we're in him. And the Trinitarian relationship is the deepest relationship that we, that anybody could ever have. The love of the Father for the Son and of the Spirit in eternity. It's the picture of absolute love, is that Trinitarian love. And what happens? We're brought into that love. So relationship and belonging in Scripture, this union, brings us into the relationship of all relationships. The love of all loves, an identity which is rooted in the person of love, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we know that too because we're so identified that we get a new name. Names are important, aren't they? The culture of identity is renaming people, giving them names, names that I want rather than the name that I've been given in Christ. If I'm united to the Trinity and I carry the name of in Christ, can I continue in sin? By no means. A thousand by no means. 
Baptism, I think we'd all agree, is a naming ceremony. Sinclair Ferguson talks a lot about this. Whatever else you think baptism is, it's a naming ceremony. You get a new name. Think about Matthew 28, verse 19 to 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have a new name, a name that's eternal, amazing grace. And how can it be that a wretch like me can be united to him? And he goes on and explains this death. He says, you've been united. Look, he says what we've just been talking about. Verse 5, if you've been united with him in death, we shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection. Because we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So this is kind of the crux of everything that's taken place. We've certainly been set free from the punishment of sin. Death, he protects us from the suffering and the pain of death. But he also, he also here, our old, the power of sin is broken from us. And he says here, the, the old man is gone away. What's he mean by the old man? Well, we have to go back into chapter 5 to understand who the old man is and who our old identity is. There's only two identities described for us in Scripture. There's lots of identities in Christ. But there's two main identities. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And that's what Romans 5 uh, sort of talks about. It says that uh, uh, sin came into the world. Uh, let's have a look at uh, chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted when there's no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So what he says is, the old man, our identity in Adam has gone. In Adam, and if you are here and remain in Adam, if you're not in Christ, you're still under the domain, the rule of sin. We're all rooted in Adam, and now we're rooted in Christ. The picture in Scripture is of a vine, and us being a vine that comes out and is nourished and fed and rooted in the person of Christ. And he talks about we're delivered from sin within our body as well. It says that um, the free gift is not like the result. Oh, sorry, I'll just go to chapter 6. It says if we've died with Christ, we'll also live with him. And because we, it has no dominion, it says it's, it's taken... The, um, it says that, oh yeah, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Not just is, are, we re, are we restored spiritually, our bodies are restored as well. So you have the ability now to not sin. The power, the realm, the reign of sin has been broken spiritually for you, but also has been broken in your body. Your body, you now have the ability to not sin. So, if that's true, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. 
a thousand times by no means. Your body has been rescued as well. And he's going to tell us, therefore, give your body over to Christ. If that's true, now take your body, which was once under the sovereignty of sin. Now use your body as instruments of righteousness. You're now no longer recognized as Adam. You're now recognized as Christ. And at the judgment seat, he's now no longer going to see you as Adam. When he looks at you, he's going to see Christ. And that's the ultimate point. When we stand in front of our judge, who's he going to see? Is he going to see you as in Adam? Or is he going to see you as in Christ? If we're hidden in Christ, that's who he sees. His blood and his body have covered us. It says in Colossians, we're hidden in Christ. That's a picture that we see in the tabernacle and the temple with the, um, the Ark of the Covenant. As God looked down and the blood of the Lamb was spread over the law that was broken, God didn't see the broken law. He saw the blood of the Lamb that was sprinkled on it. A judgment, he looks at you. He'll see the blood of Christ because you're hidden in Christ, rescued from the power of sin, rescued from the penalty of sin, and taken into heaven to be rescued from the presence of sin. So our baptism is a baptism of rescue as well. Now, there are so many more wonderful truths in this scripture, and we could spend weeks on Romans chapter 6. We could spend weeks and months on just the, the beauties of the union with Christ, but he, he ends up with the practical elements of that. And this is the first command in the whole of Romans. We've gone through five chapters. There hasn't been a command up to now. And we see three commands. It says, so you, now you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. That's a command. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That's a command. Do not present your members uh, to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present themselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. That's a command. We don't see another command until we get to actually Romans chapter 12. But because of, because of the imperative, because the, the imperative comes because of everything that's come before, because of the indicative, because of what Christ has done, now I can tell you what to do. Paul has permission to tell you what to do because of what he's telling you what Christ has done. He tells you to live differently. And he's going to tell you, you do that because it's complete. When Christ died on the cross, he said, it is finished. There's no more sacrifices needed. It's complete. It's glorious. It's blessed. Live it out. Sin doesn't reign over you. Don't let sin reign over you. Don't present your members, the parts of your body, to sin. What wonderful, glorious truths about baptism. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are baptized into your Son. We thank you that we're baptized into his death. And because of that, we participate in new life through the resurrection. Father, our ways are not your ways. Our thoughts are not your thoughts. Your plan of redemption was to bring life from death. And that's the only way that life can be brought from death, is to be united with your son. 
So thank you for those who are in Christ, that they are baptized in him, and that that's an eternal baptism. We give you praise as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for the baptism, the union, the marriage that we have that's eternal, knowing that nothing can separate us from you, from your love, because of what Christ has done. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.